Welcome to the brand spanking new podcast. I'm your host, Brock Adams. As of this glorious Monday morning, Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart found out that the Lakers were just not that into them via Twitter. Moorhead State ironically has a turnover pimp cane being branched on the sideline. And Brett Favre reenacted a Saturday Night Live skit talking about the Bears. But we begin with the three most important things that rocked our world and changed our perspective over the past seven days, or more specifically, the best of last week. First, football has returned. In the words of George Costanza, we are back, baby. And by back, we're not talking about preseason ad campaigns or what HBO tries to pass off as inside looks into NFL teams. Gone are the days of the Little League World Series, Joey Chestnut's wiener-chugging records, and the Spikeball Backyard World Championships. No longer do we have to talk ourselves into being excited about ESPN running a slew of irrelevant world championships hosted by Cotton McKnight and Pepper Brooks on the Ocho. We have football and all of its violent, blood-stained fantasy draft CTE-creating glory. F&A, Cotton. F&A! College football had an onslaught of exciting contests on Saturday, including the University of Alabama's blowout win over New Mexico State. After the game, head coach Nick Saban was asked about having such a cupcake schedule. Saban got on his soapbox defending their pathetically unchallenging opponents by arguing that it is out of his hands who they play, saying... I don't know why you would ask me that question, as if I could do something about it, when I can't do anything about it. Sure, Nick, you have absolutely no power whatsoever in deciding who you're going to play. You just wake up the morning after the national championship every year and open up your upcoming season schedule like you're a five-year-old on Christmas morning keeping your fingers crossed that there will be a Red Ryder BB gun waiting for you in week two. For you to say that you have absolutely no influence in who you play is laughable. That's like me saying I have no influence on whether or not my daughter will believe that Santa Claus exists and that Amy Schumer is a terrible comedian, or that single-digit IQ scores combined with inebriation had no influence on idiot Bama fans poisoning the trees at Toomer's Corner. Of course you have a say in who shows up to Bryant-Denny Stadium. Just admit it. You would rather play a home game against someone like Cupcake Tech rather than any other Power 5 team. In other news, one of the biggest games on Saturday was the Slugfest in Austin, where the LSU Tigers outgunned the University of Texas Longhorns 45-38. It was a great win for the Tigers as they vaulted a number four in the country and started the conversation as to whether they are a legitimate title contender. The loss for Texas was brutal and could end up haunting them when the college football playoff committee sits down to compare resumes. After the game, reporters tracked down Matthew McConaughey, the school's minister of culture. And yes, that is an actual title the star of Interstellar holds at the school, as he is a legitimately paid employee of the UT system. When asked about how we thought the Longhorns looked, a dazed and somewhat confused McConaughey replied, All right, all right, all right. Sadly, that answer will never be good enough to help Texas be a legitimate contender this season. Football bled over into Sunday as the hype surrounding the Cleveland Browns was all forgotten by a blowout loss of the Tennessee Titans. Fans of the Jacksonville Jaguars will begin wearing paper bags to their games after the player they were banking on taking them to the promised land, Nick Foles, broke his clavicle. And the Patriots still have the best middle-aged man as their best player. The NFL is alive and well and shows no signs of slowing down. Which leads us to our second point. On Wednesday, the Dallas Cowboys reached an agreement with Ezekiel Elliott for a six-year, $90 million contract extension, making him the NFL's highest-paid running back and will keep him in Dallas for the next eight years, if not the duration of his entire career. Statistically speaking, his career should have been over after the Week 8 loss to the Titans last season as the average lifespan of an NFL running back is 2.57 years, the lowest per position for the entire league. 
Granted, Zeke is a freak of an athlete, but is he really worth nearly $100 million? And the answer is no, not really. Yes, the Cowboys are 30-13 and 13 when Zeke is in the backfield. And yes, he helped secure their first playoff win in four years, which in all reality saved Jason Garrett's job. But let's face the facts. He plays the most expendable position on the entire field, and losing him will more than likely not decimate their franchise, largely because an NFL running back has the least amount of impact on an NFL game, which essentially invalidates their perceived value. This position is so disposable that a few weeks ago, there were rumors that some players would be starting a union solely composed of running backs, which is outlandish in its concept. The problem that players like Zeke and Le'Veon Bell and Melvin Gordon have is that in the modern era of professional football, the position of running back is the most expendable position on the entire roster. Yeah, that's right. You can be easily replaced and do not contribute as much as a quarterback, a free safety, or even an offensive tackle. Running backs are so expendable that they're essentially the Kelsey Grammers of the movie The Expendables 3, which, yes, believe it or not, Dr. Fraser Crane did have nine minutes of screen time in that testosterone-loaded film. Out of all the meatheads lining that movie poster, he contributed the least amount of value to the film and is therefore not worth a $90 million contract. Now, you may ask, why is an actor whose trademark character is a passive radio broadcaster for an AM psychology show in Seattle even setting foot on a movie set with the Terminator, Rambo, Ivan Drago, and Chuck Norris? And the answer is, I have no clue. Sylvester Stallone had to have lost a bet when he began producing this franchise, but that's neither here nor there. The sad reality for players like Zeke, Gordon, and Bell is that they are the Kelsey Grammers of the NFL. They are the most certainly expendable, and for the Cowboys to shell out $90 million absolutely places them at a higher risk for dysfunction in the coming years and will more than likely push Jason Garrett to call Dr. Fraser Crane and ask how to cope with the anxiety issues this franchise has caused him. And finally, Rafael Nadal won the U.S. Open, securing his 19th open-era major title and cementing his southpaw image as one of the greatest tennis players of all time. His victory is slightly tainted in the sense that it was done without his two biggest competitors, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer in the tournament, who were both ousted by underdogs earlier in the week. Nonetheless, a win is still a win regardless of who it is over. Did you hear that, Michigan? That is the most important thing to take away from Sunday's victory. At this point in his career, there are hypothetical questions surrounding his legacy, primarily being, how will he be remembered? Will it be his nearly unbreakable record number of French Open wins? Will it be his constant resilience of never giving up on a point? Or will it be the sound of his constipated oomphs delivered after every single swing? While I may not be a student of the game of tennis, I would like someone to explain to me how sounding like you're trying to pass a kidney stone boosts the trajectory beforehand. We now shift to what matters this week, which involves the 48-hour span of carnage we have all just witnessed the previous two days. Yes, I'm talking about the National Football League and all of the associated drama that goes with it. In some aspects, the NFL has evolved to a point where when I'm dozing off on the couch with the NFL network playing in the background, I can't tell if I'm listening to John Gruden's formal apology to the media for the catastrophe involving his wide receiver or an introverted love triangle on season six of Bachelor in Paradise. Christina, you better confront Dean about what he said to Bree. That was uncalled for. How dare he treat you like that? As of this Monday morning, I'm not sure which is worse. The fact that, as we previously mentioned, one of the most storied franchises in the history of the sport gave the middle finger to reason, statistics, and logic by caving to Zeke's tantrum holdout, which has the high probability of eroding their Super Bowl chances with each passing week. 
or that one of the most dysfunctional and lampooned franchises in professional sports history are regretting their four-episode contract with HBO's Hard Knocks and are making both Billy Bean and the entire city of Oakland embarrassed to share an arena with them for at least one more season. As much heat as the Cowboys were given for their overbidding on the least valuable position on their entire roster, nothing could have prepared us for what Al Davis would classify as the week from hell with one of the most narcissistic wide receivers ever. Oh wait, we were actually prepared for this. Every single one of us was. Anyone with a pulse who witnessed the 2018 Pittsburgh Steelers would have seen this from a mile away. Brown picked fights with his teammates in Pittsburgh, did not even finish the season in pads, and ultimately forced the Steelers to trade him to the Oakland Raiders. Which, think about it, that in itself is ludicrous. That's the equivalent of Mark Wahlberg giving the middle finger to Christopher Nolan because he thinks Michael Bay can get more out of his acting. Uh, Yeah, Chris, as great as it would be to have the title of Batman attached to my name and star in this stellar three-part trilogy unpacking the dimensions of an all-time classic character, I really think blowing stuff up with Transformers, it's going to get me the Oscar. The past 96 hours of the Antonio Brown saga are unreal. They just don't happen in the NFL. As Adam Schefter said on SportsCenter last night, I've waited 100 years for a story like this to happen. This is unprecedented. Now, I'm not going to do a play-by-play recap of this past week because that's the talking heads responsibility on network television. Rather, I would like to point out a few of the highlights of his infamous tenure with the Raiders and discuss what this means for the future of the NFL. First, as much fun as it would be to unpack the lunacy of a man who still wanted to play with his Pop Warner helmet that Bobby Boucher signed for him in junior high, or come up with a slew of witty remarks regarding his foot fetish and falling asleep in cryogenic chambers, one of the biggest mind-blowers came when it was reported that Antonio Brown and Raiders GM Mike Mayock almost got into a physical altercation that was prevented by... Vontez Perfect? Did I read that correctly? This is a man who has single-handedly lost both college football and NFL playoff games by unsportsmanlike conduct penalties at key moments. A man who sacks players and then tries to break their ankles as they lay under the pile. A man who has been fined over $800,000, has received 16 unsportsmanlike conduct penalties, and been thrown out of multiple games in his career. Yes, he was the mediator between Brown's potential brawl with Mayock. That's how ludicrous this week has been. Perfect being the peacemaker is the equivalent of having Charlie Sheen being your mentor as you show up to a support group for substance abuse. It makes no sense. Think about it. One of Sheen's earliest roles was a heroin addict handcuffed to a police station in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You would never have him be your role model. Likewise, Perfect shouldn't be the one who people say, man, it's a good thing Vontez was there because some crap was about to seriously go down. All of this madness came to a head through social media when Brown tweeted to the Raiders to release him, followed by an actual release of his contract, followed by an outrageously fake and scripted celebration by Brown on his YouTube channel. I'm sure that it was only coincidence that your buddy's camera and lighting settings were set to auto-adjust for that completely improv moment you had thanking the heavens for being released by the Raiders. All of this was followed by the Patriots picking him up? As if anyone was shocked by that whatsoever? Have you looked at Bill Belichick's track record? Which brings us to this. Yes, we get that in many recent instances, some NFL players feel undervalued and underappreciated. But when an individual's biggest life decision is whether or not they get to play with their personalized helmet or whether or not they are the highest paid running back at $15 million a year, a figure more than 85% of Americans will never achieve in a 40-year span, then we really don't feel bad for you. 
So form your unions, fall asleep in your cryogenic chambers, walk away from glorious NFL empires to go punt random footballs and call your general manager petty slanders. Step away from Chucky Stunt Double and a professional organization notorious for burning bridges who, as nuts as this is to say, are better off without Brown on their roster. Be the idiot we all recognize on Twitter because at the end of the day, the numbers don't lie. You are not worth the trouble. In an interview last spring, Brown told ESPN, I don't even have to play football if I don't want. I don't even need the game. I don't need to prove nothing to anyone. If they want to play, they're going to play by my rules. If not, I don't need to play. Obviously, I want the game, but I don't need the game. Say what you will, Brown, but let's face it. You picked the wrong sport to make that statement. The NFL is run by the shield, not the players. And when people get sick and tired of your antics, you will be forgotten. You are not the only 5'10 receiver running a 4'3'40 out there. And when your pace slows down a half step, or when you confront the goat in the locker room, see how many more times the Patriots will be there to bail you out. Which leads us to the final shot, the film ready or not. This week kicked off the fall fear fest as studios unleashed horror projects surrounding the holiday in October honoring diabetics. While the clown slasher It 2 was the leader at the box office, obviously because of the stellar talents of James McAvoy and Bill Hader, another underground project saw equally high reviews. Ready or Not is a film unraveling a wealthy family's empire as they play a brutally violent game of hide-and-seek with their new addition, Bride-to-Be. The film is somewhat of a cross between The Cabin in the Woods, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, and T.J. Miller's hour-long stand-up gags before he was blacklisted. While the film carries itself for 90 minutes, it does somewhat fizzle in places, which is what inevitably happens in horror movies. While it doesn't have the iconic characters as Alien, brilliant cinematography as The Shining, or the true horror of a long-haired demon climbing out of a well as The Ring, Ready or Not strategically embellishes the idea that sometimes people are hard to get along with, regardless of the situation, and that seems to be the highlight of Antonio Brown's career. He is a thorn in the side of every encounter so far in his career, and at the end of the day, he will exhaust his tenure with anyone and everyone around him. In the final scene of Ready or Not, actress Samara Weaving sits on the steps of a burning mansion with a cigarette in her hands thinking, man, sure dodged a bullet with that idiot. I'm sure somewhere in Oakland, John Gruden is smoking that same cigarette himself. Thank you for listening to Brand Spaking New. We'll definitely be back next week. Unlike Tennessee fans, who have already burned down Neyland Stadium in Knoxville for losing to the only sober team in the country. And that's canon.